Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Happy Thursday today. We're recording a little earlier in the week. If you're listening in, thanks for joining us for another edition of Take Two. This is Heidi Hatch with KUTV2 News. Mara Carabello from the Exoro Group, and this is just a lady show today right. because Greg uh, has the world on his shoulders today. So it thanks does. for being here. I, we, I'm going to say what Greg is. Can we out him? What, I yes, I think because he's fighting a natural fight here. Yes. If you've been watching any news coverage and they are showing you that ground table water flooding some houses in Draper, uh, Greg Hughes's house would be among those. He has been. Pumping, as we understand, yeah. for I think this is the third day. Third day, yes, of pumps in the basement, and he has sump pumps. I always think that's a funny word, sump, yeah, sump pump, pumps, um, where they literally had to just drill holes in their cement floor. I would be crying, ripping everything up, and then pumping it out. And I don't think they can figure out where the water's coming from. And and so, he was planning on making it. Yes, and but it's the not water working out. Today. Just keeps on coming. So, Greg, if you listen to this. We are sorry. We're thinking. We're going to challenge you to listen, even though you're not on. Yeah, we would love to come help you bail out, but we're really busy right now. <laughs> That's not nice in friendship terms. But speaking of all of that water, um, I feel like we kind of have a tsunami of politics again happening locally and nationally. We had this nice quiet break over the holidays, and at the same time here in Utah, I feel like we've got this water tsunami. For so long, we've been like, guys. Let's pray for water. We're mm-hmm. in a drought, and we're like, whoa, hold up. We've got too much now. So um, state snowpack as of yesterday was at 191% of what normal is. So that's huge. It's huge. In fact, the governor was joking this morning at a policy summit I was attending about how he had asked for flood mitigation in last year's budget, and his team sort of chuckled. Like whatever like, we hey, need this for. You know, okay. look, look, who knows? So this is nothing but great news. But um, my water guys would tell you that to resolve the summertime crunch, we need numbers like this for two and three years. Having said that, big, big deal, because what became really critical for us is that we had used our food storage. We, our reservoirs had gotten, some reservoirs got down to almost nothing, um, but most of them were in the 20s and 30%. That's just not enough storage for us to feel confident. So I think what this did for us is hopefully um, rebuild some of our storage capacity, which gives us just a little buffer as we try and claw our way out of yeah. this generational drought. And the good news is we have more storms on the way, so we're not going to stop. But I was talking to Chase Thomason, one of our meteorologists, and he said if we literally just, as stop of today, now. stopped, there was no more snow, no more rain till April, and it was just like barren, nothing happened, we would be at 89% mm. for the year, which we're obviously not going to stop right there. It's yeah. not like it's not going to snow and rain. So we're in a good position. I was walking on the Jordan River today, and usually in the wintertime you can see the muddy bottom yeah. and you can hear the little, you can see the claw prints of, creepy animals that have been around, right. there was water flowing. I'm like, I know, it's amazing. Wow. We need to, to stay a little cool so that the snowpack will come in little teeny gusts and not yeah. in a rush down to us in the valley. But yeah. what a great year. I also just 
aesthetically, it feels old school. It feels like the world you grew up in. The 80s all over again. Yeah, even the other day we were in Park City and there was just this huge snow pile that clearly plows had just been contributing to. I'm like, ha, that's nice. I don't think I've seen a big old snow pile in a long time. It has been a long time. I think back to my childhood, I feel like we're making snow forts all the time. And maybe I remember this because I wasn't an adult doing jobs, but there was a lot of snow around. So it's kind of fun to have back. But um, my yard is not idealistic right now. We drove by (laughs) and my husband and I were like, oh my gosh, we got to do yard work this weekend because we look like trash because Lots all of stuff the leaves are finally yes. coming down and pine needles and they're in the gutter. We've lost some limbs, nasty. not major, but yeah, we've it's been some heavy snow that yeah. I know it does because usually I can ignore my yard and pretend yeah. I'm responsible. We have some ewes that are almost touching the ground. They probably deserve a little dusting off. Yeah. So <laughs> the hatches will be doing yard work this weekend <laughs> with, I don't know, like rubber gloves to pick up the leaves because they're so soggy. Yeah. So, so excited for that. Um, There's a ton of politics going on right now, and I'm like, ooh, where do we start? Because there's so much to talk about. But with all of this snow, uh, we have seen, I think, almost every single day, people wanting to take advantage of the ski resorts and get up there because we have, I think at Alta, they said the Mm -hmm. most snow in the world at a resort right now. So everyone wants to ski that, but you can't get up there because the canyons are, A, either closed because they're trying to mitigate for avalanches, or B, there's so many people getting up there to enjoy the new POW Mm -hmm. that they just can't. And this is why we've been talking about for years now um, the idea of a gondola project or widening the roads. You've been working on this. Salt Lake County is trying to put their finger in the dike yeah. to fix the problem with the bus service because UTA, if I understand it correctly, got rid of some of the bus service because they didn't have enough they drivers. They just didn't have enough drivers. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I'm going to separate the issue. First, I'll out myself for the listeners who don't know. I'm very pro-gondola. I think it's best environmental solution, best for water, best for wildlife, clean and I think it's efficient. But let's talk about the and good cool work. For your Instagram pictures too, right? You yeah, know, you're exactly. like flying up the mountain. Exactly. You look yeah. cool. Look look very Euro. Mm-hmm. Um but you know the it's been a heated discussion and I'll I'm gonna put that aside for a second because what we're talking about is some emergency um infusion that Salt Lake County agreed to. I want to say it was 224,000. Yeah, and, and it was matched 500,000. Yeah, so yeah. that was matched by Snowbird, Alta, um, two or three other private industries. Now this is a program, a version of this program has been going on for a number of years where they've had these private shuttles. Uh, they say it's an emergency bus service just so those listeners who are trying to say if they want to use it, it's small vans and shuttles, which frankly is in some ways better because the buses are having a really hard time getting up the hill. Yeah. And the bummer is if there's an avalanche, it doesn't really help. You're just with some friends you gotta wait. on your yeah. way up. Um, so this is in response to two things. I think it, it supports carpooling, which is great to just cut down on traffic. Um, and it is in response. They're, they're going to start the program, like I want to say the 26th of January, a couple yeah. weeks from now, and it ends in April, mid-April. So one, I mean, if you want to look at a forecast from – government and, and snow folks and ski resorts, they clearly think we're going to have some great skiing in the spring this year. It is a stopgap measure, um, and it, it, it's sort of a, a little bit of a Band-Aid on it. Um, we still have a long-term problem. And, yeah. and the problem isn't just the ski days. I think it's every day of the year. I will point out, because I sort of this is part of the political debate, but if you do the math, conservatively... This is the county's portion, not the total portion, but the county's portion averages about twenty plus dollars a rider, and they're so, going to pay ten dollars each. So it's like thirty dollars for a ride up there. Well, that's not quite like 
the county is contributing t- tw- 20 of the dollars. Mm-hmm. And then you have to say other people are contributing. And um, so that's pretty hefty for a vehicle. I'm not for road solutions. Um, but 20 bucks a piece. And then, like you said, the rider will be asked to pay 20 or excuse me, $10. But the county is ponying up like 20 plus dollars per rider to get these skiers up the mountain. It starts to feel like an expensive ride. Like I could probably Uber people up there for less. Like, yeah, that's the big question. I mean, that I don't want to go back to this unfairly without the other side here, but like that's the question I have about gondola is that I think in the long run it's cheaper and more efficient and, and doesn't take road. I don't love road solutions for Utah right now. So here's a couple questions for the gondola idea. Let's say it got all the check marks and the go ahead six months from now, how long would it be before we actually had a gondola going up the mountain and we could use it and solving problems? (laughs) These are estimates because we're not that far enough along in the math. But when you talk to Doppelmayr, we just happen to have one of two gondola making uh, manufacturing sites just happens to be their North American bases in Utah. And they've been here for a while. I I asked him that question and said, how long does it take? It's two to three years. Now, as you suggest, that's after all of the government goes, right? That's because you have funding yeah. and you've done the engineering. But gondolas actually go up pretty quick. So it would be a couple of years. And um, it's yet to be decided if if the legislature decides to fund this. It's yet to be decided how much per cost. I think that's the big question left out there because if it's too expensive, none of us are going to use it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you can't take your family of four sightseeing um, in the fall in a comfortable way, then we're not going to use it. You know, I mean, it has to be both clean, but it also has to be, I think, accessible to an average Utah family, or, or I think it's a really pretty piece of infrastructure that doesn't serve enough people. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. One thing I was wondering about, because avalanche mitigation has been taking up a lot of the hours on the road, because when you blow that much snow down, they've got to clean it up for hours. Do you know the technicalities if they could continue running the gondola while they were throwing dynamite below? Yeah, that's easy. A gondola can work through it. I mean, they would have to coordinate the the blowing up. They wouldn't throw the dynamite as you were going by. But it won't be problematic. I mean, so avalanches won't stop the the gondola working. The other thing that you could easily do, though, is you provided a non-road alternative and really, sometimes the crunch of the morning, it's a little bit like rush hour, right? Yeah. You could essentially open that lane, load up cars, get them up, and when most of the skiers were up there, you could do avalanche mitigation. And that road up there is one of the most avalanche roads in the world. Yeah. I mean, this is not a small problem. It's a big problem. And we would still have avalanches. Um, and as big a deal for people wanting to recreate is people having medical emergencies or even being stranded and trying to get a flight or something. And mm. The gondola can work through storms. It can work through, I want to say it's like, it, it, it's like over 100 miles an hour wind is the only thing that can stop it. If it's just that sort of a very swinging. windy day, yeah. then it's not a problem. Okay. So as long as there's no tornadoes or hurricanes. Yeah. But right. hey, good for the resorts and the county and uh, I think Sandy City's at the table. Good for all of the local jurisdictions for solving this year. So those are slightly, I mean, they're slightly two different issues. And good for everybody for coming quickly to the table to solve the red snake, hopefully, or or reduce the red snake this year during the ski season. And they need to do it to keep people coming back because there can be frustration. I used to ski the Cottonwoods, and we got so frustrated with it that we went to Park City. But then you go to Park City, and if there's not enough snow, you're like, why did I get right past here? So, you know, I think some people have traded back and forth between the places trying to figure out where the sweet spot Uh, is. My household right now... 
has tried to go up the Cottonwood Canyons to ski a couple of times. And even so, Chris has flexibility and can sometimes ski on weekday mornings. And he has been stopped by avalanche control every time now. Interesting. So he, I'm, he, I'm, I've been getting frequent and often frustrated text messages coming from him. That he saying, can't play. I'm turning around right now because the canyon's closed. To which I, you know, respond that I'm at my third hour at my desk, but I'm, I'm, but I'm I so feel sorry. really bad. <laughs> it is frustrating though if you plan a day or yes. take it off work and try to get up there. And you but got yourself excited. I do think the pandemic's made it harder too because there are so many people that work from home or have more flexible schedules that That's they right. can just YOLO and go ski whenever they want if That's there's a right. great day. So, well, good for those of you who can go out there and just ski whenever you want. That sounds awesome. Uh, also going on right now, uh, we finally have a house speaker. When we met last week, we were like, is it going to happen? Is it not? Is there going to have to be a McCarthy replacement? He finally made it through on round 15. Um, people are questioning whether Republicans can come together and do what they want. And if you watch the last couple of days, they're Republican all over the place. I don't know that anything will be made of it because they've mm-hmm. got to go to the Senate. We're Democrats. But this uh, won't have be the control. last time we're talking about who yes. and if. The Speaker of the House should change. Yes. And it'll be interesting to see if he lasts. Like, is he going to last for, let's say, the next two years? Or right. is he going to be a short term? What do you yeah. What do you think? I think he's going to have challenges to his seat because he's left it open. I mean, one member of the body can bring forth a challenge. I mean, that just seems like it's really tenuous. I think he stays, though. I think at the yeah. end of the day, once people are in, we want a broker with the people we know um, can be brokered with, but it's going to be tumultuous. Yeah. And it used to be like that. Was Pelosi, under Pelosi's leadership, that it changed to the five? Because I think for a long time it was just, you know, the one person could take you down. Yeah, no, she had you had, she had a higher bar mm. to be taken down. And you saw that. I mean, she was the leader for a very long time. Yes, she was very powerful. Yeah. I know. I always kind of saw her as the person that, even when Ben McAdams was running and saying, I'm not going to vote for her, that right. she had enough people that she... It was like breaking arms in the back room. Yeah. That there was we no all know question. her name is the yes. example of that. Like you say Pelosi, and everyone's like, "Yeah, I know oh, who, yeah, you're I know who she about. is." Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, she's still around, and it'll be interesting to see not what she does. I, I sort of suspect she'll be just very supportive of Hakeem Jeffries in the Democratic caucus. Where I'm more curious, and we'll never know, is in the back rooms. Is she like? What's she doing to mess around with McCarthy? You know? Oh, I'm sure she is. I don't think you can unspeaker yourself, <laughs> which is an interesting dynamic, too, that she's still there. So right. she's not dead. She's not retired. She's yeah, still there. She's still there. And she's still going to be Speaker Pelosi. Interesting yeah. stuff. Well, um, everyone's getting elected to their leadership positions as well. And Congressman Blake Moore uh, yesterday announcing that he had been elected to the House Ways and Means Committee, which I think is a pretty powerful position because it's where all the money decisions are made. But interestingly enough, uh, Todd Weiler, uh, state senator, sounded pretty upset about it today, and I hadn't thought about it, but he says he was gobsmacked, um, which is an interesting use of Mm -hmm. terms, too. But he was um, gobsmacked by the fact that he'd left the Armed Services Committee, and that's important for um, that congressional seat because they deal with Hill Air Force Base and keeping it here in Utah and its viability do you think it's a big deal that he is not going to be a voice for Utah on that committee, or can we do just fine having a seat at the ta- the money table as well? You know, it's both. That's the tricky part about politics. Um, ways and means is a primo position, and it is an upwardly mobile position, right? I mean, it really is a powerful committee, what considered one of the best committees to be on. And Blake Moore is relatively young, and so this does show, I believe, some preference from the Speaker's office and shows some sort of influence from um, Blake Moore, who, again, is a pretty young member. 
But at the other end, we have traditionally expected and been greatly benefited from District 1 having a strong seat at the Armed Forces because Hill Air Force continues to be such a big priority for us. The question would be, and you saw Blake Moore's camp send out a press release about yeah. that, so they're clearly excited yes. about the selection of Ways and Means. But um, it it does leave us questionably vulnerable because we don't have a seat at the table. So the question for um, Congressman Moore is, what will you be doing very specifically to help with the interest. Now, Ways and Means um, still has a handle on, you know, military expenses. Yeah. So, I mean, he he can still impact the, the Hill Air Force Base issues. But I would still, you know, I think Utahns, I think Senator Weiler's right to say, I'm going to keep an eye on the fact that one of the biggest interests the congressional one should have is in keeping a healthy Hill Air Force Base. Any other surprises coming now that they're actually in business in Congress? No, I think Utah did pretty well. It got what it wanted. Um, you know, uh, I think Curtis's, John Curtis's, Representative Curtis's interests align well. I think I think Utah, because of its consistent redness um, and because the delegation, even when we've had Democrats in the delegation, I think they have a good reputation of working collectively, which you need to do yeah. in a small Western state. You sort of have to gang up a little bit on the caucuses or the states that have larger numbers. I think we have um, a, a good reputation, and I think you saw that in that most people got what they wanted out of their committee assignments. Yeah, and as we saw when the voting was happening, all four of our congressional members were State, backing yeah. uh, backing McCarthy. And Chris Stewart, I think, probably has a fairly close relationship um, with the House Speaker because I think it was about maybe two or three years ago, uh, McCarthy came to his summit that he holds annually here and I mm. think was his big guest speaker. So I'm guessing there's some kind of relationship going on if he's willing to come out and do that here in the state of Utah when he's probably being pulled in other directions. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Interesting stuff. Um, oh, I'm so sick of the drama. <laughs> I'm like, do I even want to talk about this? Okay. So now Republicans and Democrats have something new to fight about online. And I'm like, seriously, are we doing this? But President Biden apparently um, now has three batches of classified documents that have been found um, in his offices at UPenn, in his garage, in his personal home. And this all comes after he was pretty, I would say, high and mighty when right, the Trump. documents were found for Trump. Right. And the question is, I guess at this point, is I keep see, I keep seeing I laugh, but there are these little outlines people post on social media where why Bidens aren't as bad as Trump's or, you know, vice versa. And everyone's trying to say, well, his are fine because he came forward or he had right. to be subpoenaed and he wouldn't. But I'm like, the question is, I'm guessing most presidents, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm cynical, but I think most presidents probably have some of these papers. It appears. Right? Right? I mean, yes, it seems that, like it. I, yes. and, and you do wonder how many times, you know, how many people just packed them on up and and now they're going through their boxes. Um, the issue so the issue obviously is the sensitivity of the document yeah. because they all belong to the arc the state uh, the National Archive and the big question is secret top secret military secrets and things like that. Um, I do think there are some differences but I say that to not excuse Biden because Come on, guys! You're you're the leader of the free world, and more importantly, that means you have access to staff. Yeah. So, like, encourage them to do a good job. Um, I think the differences are that Biden is who identified the Biden attorneys, not him, but his Biden. They sort of proffered them up um, without any investigation. They didn't argue with the archives, which, but they didn't tell us for a while because they knew about it since. 
before the election, and now they're like, hey, guys. Yeah, so it's been a few weeks. Um, If you go through the process of what they were collecting and what they were sending, um, it wasn't made public for a while. They notified right away, um, and they aren't arguing with archives. I mean, a, a differentiator, I think they're equally problematic, but a differentiator is that, you know, the um, Trump and folks took nine months and argued with the archives about whether they had the right, which is why ultimately they had to send the FBI in to go get them is because the Trump camp camp wouldn't agree to give it up. Biden camp actually identified and gave it up. But it is like, okay, so I suspect everybody's got these in their basement. Um, right. It seems like it. So... So are we going to be just moved to a point where we're like, okay, because I can just see the next presidential election. Let's say it's a Biden-Trump year. I think we're all hoping that there might be some other names in the mix. Right. That these are the fights we're hearing. Do we get to a point where we're like, you know what? Presidents can take home what they want. This is their work. They can either like spill the secrets from their mouth or have these papers. Or do we be like, okay, naughty, naughty, please stop doing this. Leave them where they're supposed to be. If you need to check them out from our library, let us know, you know. Where yeah, do we I mean, I think, that, I think we still have to say, no, they, they belong to the state. Or, you know, they belong to the country. And we're still going to have to have rules around them. And st- we're still going to watch. What I don't like is that these are going to be cheap political footballs. And they're going to just speak to character and method. It's what you said. Already, I don't want to read the coverage anymore. Yeah. And already... It's just been weaponized, and already we've forgotten about the question that you're posing, which is, hey, why are these protected? Do they need to be? Was this just an old habit? Is it not? And I think these records are really important. I don't have the same experience, but I remember I was the director of the Centennial Commission, and under the Centennial, we were required by state archives because it was a state event Mm -hmm. and it was historic. We had an increased obligation to archive what we were doing. Ah, it's laborious and it's it's voluminous, and you're saying to them, "Really, you guys want all this?" Like it really is sort of yeah. memo scratched on the back. And I remember at the time thinking, "Really, you don't want this curated at all? You just want us to box up everything and send it?" Um, but through that, we got to talk to the state history and archivist, and there is a really strong case in a democracy for having hallmarked and marked and made account of the dealings of the state, if you will, and the state being meaning government. And so I still think it matters, and I still think it's important. I think how does one decide whether it was inappropriate to take this or just stupid? I mean, I remember, frankly, that in the Trump round as well. Some of the stuff I was like, eh, do I really care that much that – it just probably seemed like it got thrown into something where other yeah. things I was like, that seems like a big stinking deal yeah. and that we should care. Um, I do like that Merrick Garland right away has supported uh, and appointed a special counsel yes. to the Biden because I do think that perception of an independent person just sorting through on our behalf about what's scary and what's not as opposed to the finger pointing that's already yeah. started. And I guess the big question we have, whether it's with Trump or Biden and all of the above, were they just like, take all this stuff, it's mine out of my office. And Someone just threw it in a moving box? Yeah, threw it in a moving box. Or were there specific things where they're like, take this with me, I may need it, you know, yeah. I need a receipt on that, this. That frankly is why I'm feeling a little partisanly indicting of the fact that Biden turned him in, which seems to me to indicate an oops. I'm not saying that's okay, but he's like, I didn't mean to have these. They were just in a box versus Trump where I'm like, why were you so obstructionist about someone walking in and 
Why didn't you just say, oops, these were in a moving box, yeah. right? I mean, uh, why would one intend? Did anyone intend? And so that's the question. Although Biden may have learned from Trump, too, that you don't put up a fight and you just say, oopsies, and let me put this in yeah, a... Yeah, maybe so. And here's some cookies and I'll deliver it myself, you know? So I don't know. But yes, it seems like everybody's got them. And now I'm feeling left out that I have no classified documents Yeah, I mean, I show. think we should be asking uh, the Bushes what they've got. Like, what does everybody have? Come on. I know. <laughs> and I guess the good news is, is that all of our former presidents have Secret Service protection and their homes are watched. So it's not like random people right. are probably going through their stuff. But it does make you wonder why they have the papers and do presidents have them there because they invite someone over and they want to be like, well, look at this. And again, I think it's the classification we're looking at. Yeah. I could see where someone just a stack of... I don't know, photo ops didn't get put in the archive box. It got yeah. put in the to-go-home box. But classified documentation, I think we need to make a decision about. All right, we'll see what happens. Um, back here in the great state of Utah, Governor Spencer Cox um, has um, been talking a little bit about where the tax breaks may come in the legislative session. And he's talking about wanting to see Utah sales tax food eliminated, which is interesting because we've been on such a weird seesaw with that. Is this him just trying to be congenial with the people of Utah and saying, I hear you, everything's expensive, let's get rid of it, let's save everyone a few dollars where we can? Or is this something meaningful where he'd like to see the legislature look at this possibility? Yeah, I mean, I think on the heels of all the inflation conversations, it's sort of natural uh, that I think the sentiment publicly right now is food tax would help, although I think many of us feel like, oh, it's so high, but I guess it would be less high. Um, this has in the last few years, it's gone back and forth, uh, as to who supports it. But in the last few years, it's probably been hallmarked more by the Democrats in Utah than it yeah. has the Republicans. One thing that's really interesting is that, I don't know if this is because the governor brought it up, but I was hearing a few months ago, if you talked to, to House and Senate leaders, the Republicans were sort of like, no. And now they're more close to, oh, let's talk about it. So it seems to be on the table. One of the other things that I think has put food on the table is, the food tax on the table is how much money we seem to have right now. Yeah. And that I don't think if we were offering a small tax, I think it probably wouldn't make the category of small, but it looks like we might be offering uh, more taxes. I mean, one of the things that I heard, there was an economic policy summit this morning and, and the governor proffered that he would like to see up to a billion dollars returned to the citizens. And then you heard the Speaker of the House, Brad Wilson, sort of emphatically say, our philosophy is Utahns know how to spend their money better than the government knows how to spend the money. And that he wanted to take a rather aggressive position about um, a tax return. And so you're seeing all levels of leadership, both Republicans and Democrats, um, hallmarking that it's a high priority for them. And the mantra seems to be we can spend it, you know, the citizens can yeah. spend the money better than government. Billions seemed super optimistic to me from the governor. I was like, wow, that that's a big, big number to return. I also get concerned that rainy days and tightening um, belt straps at the state service level happens quicker than we think. I mean, those, those um, shifts in needs from essential services can happen pretty quickly. So I probably wouldn't be a fan of an extremely large uh, tax return. But um, I do think we have enough money to consider multiple ways of returning people's hard-earned money. Yeah. And I think part of the question that's coming right now, too, is depending on where you take the money from, it's it, how where they balance, you, the how to balance it. Yeah. And um, I think the state constitution 
says where some of the money goes from depending on where the taxes are. So you have to be careful of where you take it from and where you'll where where you will be losing out. So, yeah, it's yeah. been the age old. Uh, what goes into the general fund is mm-hmm. ten, tends to be uh, retail tax or sales tax, and what goes into school and now it's been a little school plus school plus some mm-hmm. kids programming. Um, that tends to come from our property taxes. Yeah. So yeah, where you get the refund matters to how much money the state has to spend on your priorities. I feel so much richer when they don't take money out of my paycheck. Yeah, it does make yep. you feel better. And, you know, it's an easy victory. I have been a critic of the small refund. I remember back in the Mike Levitt days, he gave this refund, and it was something like 78 cents a month or something. And I'm like, I ah, don't bother. I, right, I was sort of annoyed. Nice. I'm like, do the collective bargaining here. Go do something good for us. Don't give me back 78 cents. So I, I would say to our, our Republicans who will make the decision, give us something big. Give us something meaningful or keep it for your Keep it for collective programs. We all want Louis Vuitton shoes or nothing. <laughs> Buy something nice for us. Yes, please. <laughs> um, speaking of the governor feeling rich and talking billions, um, I wanted to talk about domestic violence because, unfortunately, it's something that we see rearing its ugly head here in Utah. I don't know if it happens more here in Utah than other places, but tomorrow are the funerals for that family of eight that was killed in the murder-suicide in Enoch, Uh, While that's happening, the governor says that he really wants the legislature to start putting money towards this because I think that's the number one reason behind murders in our state is it ends up being something that is domestic violence related. Mm -hmm. I know it's something that's near and dear to the heart of the lieutenant governor because she's seen family members involved in this. But he threw out $50 million, and you said today he was feeling more like he was going to talk a billion dollars? Well, a billion would have been his total tax cut. Oh, total tax cut, um, okay. But he is a supporter of domestic violence, and one of the one of the bills I'm excited about is being carried, is offered right now by Candace Perucci. It talks about, uh, it supports the governor's philosophy of putting a $50 million fund together to educate and support those who are, I'm experiencing domestic violence, but one of the things I'm really excited about, the content of her bill also includes standardization of law enforcement data and Mm -hmm. uh, particularly force used um, during the situation. And I think that is so smart. This is something I want to say Todd Weiler, actually, but uh, we've had a couple. This has been something that Deidre Henderson has supported. But I think in addition to direct support of... um, the people experiencing domestic violence, this institutional or sort of what would be um, standardized of the lethality assessment. I was looking up what they were doing. Track when police do lethality assessments. So it is Senator Weidler and Deidre Henderson. Um, They're saying the primary goal and purpose is to get a place where we have some standardized data where we're using the data Uh, that's over a decade old for domestic violence. We do know that unifying police data becomes enormously helpful in successful prevention campaigns and also where to put resources to most help the people. Utah, I understand, is in the mid-30s, like 35 30% domestic violence. If we stop to think about that, 3 in 10 women, I think the men numbers are in the low 20s, so that would be, you know, 2 in 10 men who are experiencing it. And we're slightly below national average, but three in 10 women is too many, right? I mean, that is unacceptable. And it impacts kids and families, and it's a really, sometimes can be a really silent burden until it's it's too late. And you see that expressed, I think, um, the governor said where he, he mentioned he was heartbroken and you, you about the Enoch family. Yeah. And you saw the Enoch family, I think, um, 
getting so much attention in part because I think so many Utahns are either directly or indirectly experiencing this. Yeah, and I think they see that family as even at least, I mean, we obviously don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Um, the mother-in-law was living with them because obviously they were, you know, filing for divorce and trying to figure things out. But she had told her attorney, at least according to what the attorney told us, without trying to break attorney-client privilege, that she wasn't concerned about violence. So it didn't sound to me like this was a home that dealt with domestic violence. But yeah. we can see how quickly that changes when you feel like you're losing everything. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I think that that's correct to point out that I don't know that this was a house of, well, it's certainly physical violence. I mean, maybe there was yeah. mental, and certainly this this man was grappling with some heavy-duty stuff yeah. to have done what he did. But I, I do like that in a time in which we have some funds um, looking at domestic violence, I want to challenge us to look at sexual assault because um, Utah is one of the highest states in the nation for sexual assault. And we're not talking about it enough, and I think it's because, uh, frankly, in Utah, we don't talk about sex enough. Like, we don't we don't have open discussions um, about about issues that relate to reproductive rights and relate to um, women's issues. And I think we have to tackle those because it's so many women in Utah are experiencing harm because of this. So true. And I think that any if this passes, standardization in the police departments, I think, can only be good for a bunch of different areas. I know we've worked on investigations over the years here at KUTV where we were trying to get across-the-board information from police departments, and it's so hard because some police departments have paper files where they're just, you know, writing them on a notepad and putting them in, like, a filing drawer, and some of them are computerized, and so actually... Some wrote the age. Some didn't. Yeah, it's so so hard to even know what's happening in our state because there is nothing standard to figure out what the information is. And you know, first time there's a reporter, then it takes you hours and hours to even just get a general percentage, and so how do you judge what the problem is? How do you judge who is most likely to have this problem. So I really, you can't underestimate the power of standardized information from law enforcement. All right. I'm excited to hear that. And next week, we're going to save a juicy topic for next week because we, we're already talking about the what-ifs of the next election. But Senator Mitt Romney, everybody's waiting to see, will he run? Will he not run? When will he announce? When will he not announce? But I knew, know you and Greg have very differing views on this. So we're going to talk about it. Do you want to give us a little teaser right now, like where you think we're at right now? I mean, there's so many variables. I love this because... A new day brings a new philosophy about mm-hmm. what Mitt Romney's going to do. So I, I think it matters. I think it matters to a lot of leaders that are watching this race. If you were trying to decide whether to get it, I mean, running for U.S. Senate is a life-changing um, uh, endeavor. And so I think it's an interesting topic that a lot of people actually are paying attention to. It's a six-year commitment. Six-year commitment and a lot of frequent flyer miles. Yeah. And a commitment by us, the voters, that have to put up with you once we put you there for six years. All right, well, we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, Greg, if you're listening to this while you're pumping water out of your basement, uh, we feel you. We hope that the rain stops, at least for the weekend, but the snow is returning on Monday. So get your shovel and arms ready because it is coming back. Thanks for joining us and listening to this ladies' edition of the Take Two podcast. 